of our actions. And we're able, everyone is able to, so everyone has a conscience who gets to the age of reason. And that's what we mean by the expression, the age of reason. The age of reason is the age in which a person can make a judgment, this is right or this is wrong, I ought to do this, I ought not to do this, because um, of, um, say, the golden rule. And so conscience is based on what we call first moral principles, First, the reason why they're first, because you don't get them from anywhere else. In other words, I can't reason to the golden rule. That's where I start from to reason to everything else that I should do or shouldn't do. And the, I don't need to reason to the golden rule because I, I know it. So the most basic principle of all is do good. Right? And nobody doesn't know that. I might not follow it, but I know I should do good. And to whom should I do good? That's the second principle, would be the golden rule, to my neighbor as to myself. And the reason is because my neighbor is another self. In other words, another human being, the same as me, fundamentally. All right? And then another principle is um, God is to be loved above all because he's the source of all good and the source of my being. Right? And then um, I should seek the common good over private good. Right? So the good of the whole, um, give everyone their due, um, obey legitimate authority, not illegitimate authority. Right? So if government puts, I don't know, a law that I should kill my neighbor or, or something like that, obviously I must not do it because right? that's not legitimate authority. We'll come back to that later when we look at um, the commandments. Right? And then I can never do evil to get a good. That also would be a first principle. Right? And conscience applies those principles to particular situations. Right? So I shouldn't do this um, because, um, because of the golden rule. Right? Questions on conscience? Everyone has a conscience. And the reason for that is because you can't not know the golden rule. And sometimes people think, well, what about a sociopath? You know, the person who um, uh, commits crimes you know, over and over again. Even, um, uh, even a, you know, a, a crime gang knows you can't steal from the, you know, I don't know, the common collection or something, right? In other words, they maybe steal from everybody else, but you try stealing from the thief and he'll get indignant. Right? And that shows that it's written on the heart. All right, quick. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. Right. So, conscience. Yeah. I mean, so it could be, so if they're five year old, they don't yet, at the, they're not yet at the age of reason. But, um, no one can lose their conscience entirely. But yes, conscience can be deformed tragically. And it can be rightly formed. And that's part of um, continuing catechesis, is that we want to continue to form our conscience all through life. Right? In other words, I, should, I, I can never lose my conscience, but I never can think I, my conscience is perfectly formed right now. Right? So it's always a task. And yes, we're vulnerable to 
you know, social pressures, peer pressure, and extreme cases, right, where kind of brainwashing and so forth. But, but still, um, it's there um, to judge. And when God judges us, he also knows the difficulties we've had in forming our conscience. Right? And he judges mercifully, obviously. Questions on that? And you can never act, you should never act against your conscience. Right? So, it's, it's, so I, I say this, maybe I shouldn't um, take it simply for granted, but it's always wrong to act against our conscience. And that's because our conscience is the best thing we've got. Yes, it can be um, not rightly formed. But even when it's not rightly formed, it's still God speaking to me um, in, in the best way. And so I still need to follow it, even if my conscience is incorrectly formed. And that will lead to getting it more, better formed over time. Right, so some a classic example. If I am been raised in a Muslim family and I think that Islam is the true religion, I should follow what that religion teaches. And only when I start to ask questions that I think can't be rightly answered, um, and I think, well, maybe it's not the right, true religion, Christianity is the true religion, then, again, I need to keep following that same conscience that earlier told me to follow um, the teaching of the religion I was raised in, and now is telling me, to follow the teachings, say, of, um, of Christianity. All right, so you, you always need to follow your conscience. And in fact, we'll, later today, hopefully, if I get there, um, we'll say that's what sin is. Sin, um, every sin involves going against my own conscience. Questions on that? Conscience, um, sometimes we fool ourselves. Right, sometimes. Very frequently, we fool ourselves. And conscience is saying one thing, and I override it because I'm wanting something else to prevail. And so, yes, there can be cases when we're perplexed in conscience because it seems our conscience is telling us sometimes um, contradictory things. But in a case like, let's take a, um, suppose somebody, take your case, um, is raised by, let's say, terrorists and is taught to do a terrorist action. Um, they're now at the age of reason, they're grown up, and they're going to, they know the golden rule, and they know that, let's say, if they're you know, blowing up, let's say, the uh, World Trade Center, and they know that they wouldn't want to have their family members blown up, and that they shouldn't do it, and so conscience will be telling them not to do it. But there can be cases in which one's perplexed, because one thinks that it's also good to follow um, whatever. Um, but e even there, a person should follow their conscience, and the conscience will be telling them, um, thou shalt not kill. Questions on that? It can be messy, but um, so basically two fundamental things. You have to follow your conscience, but you have to continually seek to form your conscience better. Right? And that's part of what we're doing in this section of the catechism. In other words, we're looking at the principles that will govern what I should do or not do in a given um, circumstance. Okay. All right, I'm going to switch to... Okay, virtue. So a huge part 
of the Christian moral life is about the virtues. So first of all, what is a virtue? So the, the word itself, virtue, simply comes from Latin to mean strength or capacity. But it, what we're talking about is a strength or a capacity to do good. In other words, to act rightly, to act well, to act in a way that's pleasing to God and in accordance with his plan. Right? So it, what is it? It's a, a habitual, firm disposition to do the good. And so it's, a, it's like sometimes, um, so it's a, uh, philosophers use the term habit. A virtue is like a habit, but very often when we use the word habit, we mean something easily changeable, right? So I've got a habit, I don't know, of waking up at six in the morning, but it's easily put to seven or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a disposition that's firm and stable, not unchanging. Yes, a person can lose their virtues over time or gain them over time. But nevertheless, they're stable dispositions to act in a certain way. And a virtue will be a stable disposition to act well. And its opposite is a vice, which will be a stable disposition to act badly. All right? And so in human life, virtue and vice is of incredible importance. Right? Precisely because when, um, when we act, um, we're always acting in the here and now. Right? So I'm acting today. But I'm not acting out of nothing. I'm acting out of a character that I've acquired over time. Right? And that character will be either virtues or vices or something in between. Right? And so um, forming virtues is crucial. Questions on that? So there are lots of virtues, but I'm going to, in catechesis, we simplify and speak about seven fundamental virtues, four cardinal virtues, and three theological virtues. There are a lot more virtues than that, but we can fit all the virtues with one of those seven. And so it's like a catechetical or pedagogical device. And so I'm going to start with the human virtues. That's going to be the four cardinal virtues. So human virtues are um, stable, um, perfections of our spiritual faculties. Sorry, it's philosophy language. Um, so we've got two spiritual faculties, our intellect, our, basically our mind, and our will. And so virtues are going to perfect our intellect and our will, and they're also going to perfect our passions, but not in exactly the same way. Our passions is more or less the same as our emotions or feelings. So virtues um, govern, they, they perfect our intellect and their, our will, and they guide our passions or emotions to hit the target more than, um, whereas a vice is going to um, um, do the opposite. A vice will allow my passions to act, to lead me to act against right reason and against, um, against charity. And how do we get them? We get them by acting in a similar way over time. Right? So if I do, let's say, acts of um, justice again and again and again, I become more just. Right? If I do acts of patience again and again, I become more patient. 
right? But the opposite is equally true. If I do acts of, let's say, intemperance, over time I become less temperate, right? I become less just, I become less patient, etc. And so our actions um, have, we could say, two effects. There's the immediate effect of what I do with, let's say, I, I steal something, right? So there's an, sorry, I always use you as an example. So there's an immediate effect. Somebody else is out of um, something that I've stolen. But there's another, no less serious effect that's hidden, and that's in me. Because now I become, by that act, let's say I do it 100 times, I become a thief. And I now have a, a vice um, that's been built up by acting that way again and again and again. All right, does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. So we get our virtues by our own actions. We'll talk in a minute. Grace helps us to do those actions. And so it's ultimately not simply our glory, our virtues, but God helping us. Right? But we nevertheless have to do those actions, and it changes our character. In other words, our, characters are not, our character is not something fixed at birth, right, with our DNA. Yes, with DNA, maybe I have a certain predisposition for certain things. I don't know, addiction or something like that. But um, in terms of virtue and vice, there's no, no one is born with it. Everyone has to acquire it by our own action. Right, so, yeah. And so we acquire them by repeating, by doing again and again morally good acts. And grace um, will elevate them, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Virtue isn't the same thing. So I think a lot of people think of, let's say, the virtue of know, chastity. Ch so chastity is the virtue by which I um, moderate my passions so that I don't do unchaste things, things, let's say, against um, um, the proper use of human sexuality. So I think very often people think of um, virtue as simply gritting your teeth and um, trying harder. And that's part of what we need to do, that's how you start. But that's not what a virtue is. A virtue gives ease, self-mastery, and joy in doing, in acting in accordance with that virtue. Right? That's the end goal. So someone who has a virtue, let's say justice. If I have the virtue of justice, then I'll find joy in paying my taxes. Sorry, that sounds crazy. but. Um, or simply paying, you know, in other words, giving to each one what is their due. If I'm just, I'll like that. And if I'm unjust, I won't like it. I may still do it, right, because I don't want the consequences. Um, so ease, maybe a better example. Um, something analogous happens in sports and music, right? So if you've got, you know, let's say a sports star, a basketball star, um, they have ease, self-mastery, and joy in doing, in playing that sport, right? And that's because through you know, thousands of acts, they've made it their own. They've incorporated that, um, let's say, the art of basketball into their um, character, right? And so they have an ease, um, a self-mastery, and a joy in doing it. And so it's similar for things like justice, except it's a lot harder. It's easier to acquire the virtue. I mean, uh, um, that may sound counterintuitive. Obviously, it's only a few people win the Olympics. But nevertheless, it's harder because it involves the whole of our life to, um, to get the virtue, say, of justice, prudence, 
um, temperance. But it's um, immensely more important. Right? Something similar in music, right? Some, um, a great violinist right, will have a joy and ease and a readiness in playing the violin, whereas somebody just beginning won't. Right? And so you have to get that virtue over time by practice. Right? And if I mess up, I shouldn't despair, right? Because it's not the one act that counts, it's the thousand acts over time. And so the fact that virtue is important in human life is actually very hopeful, right? Because it means I can always begin again and, um, and start the process again, right? I can always get up after a fall and work for virtue. Questions on that? So what, let's talk about the four cardinal virtues. Um, so this goes back to the Greek philosophers who spoke of four fundamental virtues, Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero. And, um, and so these are accessible to human reason. So pagan philosophers who didn't know Christian revelation could speak about prudence, justice, and temperance, and fortitude. And so these are the four um, fundamental human virtues. So what is, I'm going to start with prudence, which maybe is the least well understood. So prudence, we often use it in human language to speak about a particular aspect of life, a prudent money manager or something, right? A prudent investor is an investor who invests um, carefully, deliberately, um, not impulsively, not you know, stupidly. Um, and, but the virtue of prudence that we're talking about here isn't about, you know, say, investing or something like that, but about acting in a well-deliberated way in every aspect of life, right? So there's no matter what my, um, uh, what aspect of life, I always have to be using prudence. Um, so prudence is the virtue of, um, so this is from the catechism, D it disposes reason to discern in every circumstance our true good and to choose the right means for achieving it. So it guides the other virtues by pointing out the right measure. Let me take, a, um, take another example. Maybe I should have done this one last. Um, I'm, I'm going to take an example of courage. Right? Um, so courage is another cardinal virtue. It's the same as fortitude. And courage is the virtue that counters unreasonable fear. Right? So courage would be a virtue to override Maybe an impulse to flee when I shouldn't flee, but I need to confront something. All right? But how do I know when I need to confront something? Because sometimes I should flee. Right? In fact, Jesus, with regard to persecution, he says, you're going to be persecuted, speaking to the apostles. And when you, they persecute you in one city, what should you do? Flee to the next. So very often, one should flee from a danger. Right? In other words, um, I don't need to confront every danger. I don't need to climb Mount Everest if I'm not trained in mountain climbing. Right? That would be imprudent. Right? It would be against right reason. And so um, courage, so the point of this example is that courage needs to be governed by prudence. And in fact, every other virtue needs to be done prudently. Um, let's take um, part of the Christian life is fasting. And that would be, say, in, in Lent, to not um, to abstain from certain things that are legitimate, like you know, whatever dessert, um, meat, um, but um, 
when I fast, I have to do it prudently. I shouldn't fast in such a way that, all right, this Lent, I'm not going to eat anything for the whole of Lent. Right? I'll die. And that would be imprudent. Right? So prudence has to govern every other um, virtue. And prudence is simply a virtue of deliberating well. And that is in making, deliberating is a fancy word for making a choice. So when I make a choice, what does it mean to deliberate well? It means to think, well, what's my ultimate end in doing this? Um, God, the good of my neighbor, um, the good of family, whatever, the good of my country. Um, and then to choose in accordance with that right end um, and with the means that are appropriate to these very particular circumstances. It would be nice if there was a book in which I could just find out what I should do in every circumstance. And there isn't, right? And that's because I need a virtue, not a book. Right? There's no recipe book that's going to tell me in every circumstances, this is what I have to do. But the prudent person, by practicing, deliberating, and in the light of God, is going to learn to choose well over time. There's a ton more to say about this, but I Let's see if I got another slide. No. Um, let me say a few more things. To, um, so to act with prudence, a key thing is, depending on, let's say I have an important decision to make about taking one job or another job, um, getting married, um, entering the seminary, whatever it might be, what's the, if it's an important decision to do it prudently, what's the first thing I should do? Anybody? What's that? You should discern it. Discern it with... Research. Okay, I'll need to do some research but I should talk with somebody. And that person I should talk with first is God. In other words, if I'm making an important, yes, I do want to do research, but the first thing I should do is um, bring it to prayer and ask God, um, what do you think about this? All right, now you might say, he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna answer me in a voice out loud, that's true, but he's gonna help me to see in my heart what's the right thing. So I should bring it to prayer. If I'm a married person, I should consult my spouse. And one should consult, and one can consult a spiritual director or a priest or a wise or prudent person. So that's all part of prudence. But if it's not that an important thing, not to over, right? That would, it would be imprudent to make um, some people, um, every decision becomes uh, overwhelming because um, sometimes people are perfectionists in wanting to make every decision perfectly. That's imprudent because that's not in accordance with the circumstances. Right? That's great if it's important, but not if it's not that important. Questions on that? Another, way to, another thing about prudence is to know oneself. Right? So it's, if I want to be prudent, let's suppose I'm a person who uh, um, is prone to anger. Um, and I know that about myself, it'll help me to be prudent to know ah, I'm likely to go off in this direction, and so I'm going to steer myself a little bit to the opposite. Right? Or if, I mean, whatever, whatever your personal... So each one of us has a temperament that's in us by, by, um, by our birth, by our DNA, which isn't virtue or vice. It's simply a way that each of us is made up um, so according to our temperament, some people are going to be more impulsive, some people are going to be extroverted, some people are going to be introverted, etc. And um, part of prudence is knowing who I am 
and what my temperament is so that I can govern it. All right? Questions on that? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just that knee-jerk. Yeah. It's not your personality. Yeah. Let your me... personality is a combination of education and formation and environment. It's just sort of the nature part of nurture. That's all. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm, gonna, I'm distinguishing here um, temperament, which is in us by, by our birth, and that's a certain kind of being that we have, and our character. Sometimes people use the words interchangeably. And that's just a matter of, of um, using words. But I'm distinguishing here that character is something that we form with um, virtue and vice. Okay. Questions on prudence? Um, let's go on to justice. So justice is to give to each one their due. Right, so that's, it's a virtue to give to, um, so it might be, um, if I'm a, an employee, part of the virtue of justice is that I do the work that I'm being paid for, right? That I, again, paying taxes, that I give to each one um, what is due to them. As a parent, part of justice is educating my children and, and providing for them, right? It would be against justice if I were not to provide, if I could. And providing for one's parents, providing for all kinds of things. So it's simply giving to each one their due, and that's going to be different in each circumstance. Right? And justice, it's actually in the will. It's the will to give to each one their due. It might be that I'm not able to. Let's say I can't pay a debt because of some tragedy. And justice is the will, the desire to do it, even if I'm physically blocked from doing it. All right? Um, and justice can be right, to, to one another. It can be with regard to society as a whole. And often we'll give it a different name there, solidarity. So solidarity will be the virtue of justice, not simply in fulfilling a contract that I have with my employer, um, but in seeking to provide for the needy in society at large, seeking the good of the whole of society. Right? And then there's another part of justice, which would be those who have public office or public responsibility to distribute and to give fairly to all those who depend on them. Even there, it would be part of being a parent. It would be distributing the goods to all those who depend on one. Right? So those would be different parts of justice. But there's also justice with regard to God. And this may seem strange at first. And so if justice is to give to everyone their due, is there something due to God? Well, yes. He, he made me. He made you. He's the source of every good. And so the first part of justice to God would be thankfulness, gratitude, um, adoration, um, and obedience to God. Right? So those would be all, and above all, love. Right? That's the first commandment, to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul. And it's due to him because he's loved us first and loved us to the death. Right? And so for classical philosophers, religion is a virtue. Now that may, 
We're not accustomed to thinking of religion that way, right? We think of religion as a kind of system of beliefs or practices. And that's, it's not that that's wrong, but that's missing the deeper part of religion. Religion is ultimately more a virtue than a set of beliefs. It would be that virtue in the, my will of wanting to give to God his due. All right, the virtue of religion. We'll come back to that um, next week when we look at the first three commandments. Right, so basically the first three commandments are about the virtue of religion. Questions on justice? Again, we'll look at more details with regard to justice when we look at the, the commandments, um, the fifth commandment, sixth commandment, etc. All right, fortitude is um, the virtue, it's just a fancy word for courage. So the virtue of fortitude would be that virtue of um, constancy or firmness in pursuing difficult goods so that I don't give up or um, simply flee. Right? And it can, there can be times in which it's necessary to sacrifice oneself, even in one's life, for maintaining, say, justice or charity. Right? And that would be a martyr is someone who is willing to give their life rather than to be unfaithful um, to God or a soldier to one's country. And so um, fortitude, we see it maybe, you know, in, in, in easiest to see it in the martyr or in the soldier who dies for his country. But um, fortitude, we need to practice in all the different little things of life as well. And right? so there's a fortitude in, um, in ordinary life, and that is precisely to um, be firm in pursuing the good, even when there are difficulties. Questions on that? But again, one has to do it prudently. Right? In other words, you don't want to be reckless. That's not actually fortitude. Right? So somebody who just you know, um, impulsively does super risky, crazy things, that's not the virtue of fortitude. That would be imprudence. And then the, the fourth is temperance. So temperance, so if fortitude is strengthening um, my resolve in the case of difficulties where I want to flee, temperance is putting a break when my feelings too much go towards, um, um, say, towards pleasurable goods. So temperance would be to moderate the attraction of pleasure, not to eliminate it, but to moderate it according to the circumstances. Right? So again, Temperance needs to be governed by prudence, just like everything else. And so it would be the right balance. So all of these virtues are about the right balance. So fortitude is the right balance between, say, courage, um, which would be the right, and recklessness um, on the uh, extreme. And temperance, the right balance between um, um, excluding, putting a break on, let's say, um, pleasures that would be gravely harmful to myself or others, especially in the sexual sphere, um, but um, so as to hit the right balance according to my state of life, All right, if I'm married, etc. All right, And it, this would apply to eating. Right? So there's a temperance in eating. There's a temperance in anything that I find pleasurable, um, and also in the sexual sphere. And we give it there a different name, chastity. And we're going to come back to that in a class all to itself when we go through the commandments. 
and we look at the sixth and ninth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and we'll have a whole class on chastity. Questions on that right now? All right, so it's the right balance or mean. And that's going to be different in different circumstances. Again, taking with regard to sexuality, it, let's say the circumstance that I'm married or not married, that's going to make a huge difference in um, the right mean with regard to making use of human sexuality. Right? And um, likewise for, um, for eating. My personal condition, if I'm you know, diabetic or what, whatnot, um, celiac, is going to make something a right mean different than for another person. Whether it's Lent will also make a difference, right? If I'm wanting to sacrifice something for the Lord. Questions on the four uh, cardinal virtues? We call them cardinal simply because the word cardinal comes from Latin for hinge, the hinge of a door. And so the idea would be our moral life hinges on those four virtues. there, so um, the gospel presupposes those four virtues, but gives three other virtues that we don't find in Aristotle or Plato, which is interesting right? and it makes sense. Um, so one doesn't need revelation to know about justice, um, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. But one needs revelation to know more important virtues, and the, those are the three that we call theological faith, hope, and charity. Charity um, can be um, is synonymous with love, right, rightly understood. Right? So the three theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. And they're called theological. So theological comes from the Greek word theos, God. And so a theological virtue is one that has God as its direct object. And that's not the case for other virtues, right? So you know, temperance has eating, let's say or pleasures, and the right balance as its proper object. Justice has, you know, paying what's, giving what's due to my neighbor. But faith, hope, and love have God for their object. And so that's why these virtues need to be revealed by God and actually need to be given to us by God. We don't actually have the strength and the moral strength to do them by ourselves from ourselves. So nobody can, so we get these virtues in a different way than we get the um, carnal virtues. We said the carnal virtues we get by practice, but faith, it's not simply I can practice it into being. Right? So um, if you're here in RCA, some of you may have doubts about the Catholic faith. Right? It might be that you're investigating, and you're, um, you can't simply will to have faith like that because it's ultimately given by God, and it's a gift. And yes, we can receive it, we can do prudent things to, to keep it and to help it to grow, but it's ultimately not from us, because it's above us. Does that make sense? So the, the theological virtues are um, from God, and they're ordering us back to him in a way that we can say is supernatural, is above our natural power. And this is why we need to pray for these virtues. So I need to pray for, and it's a good thing to pray for every morning, to ask God to give, or not just morning, but whenever we think of it, to ask God to strengthen in us faith, hope, and love. 
right? So there's a, a beautiful prayer in, um, in the Gospels. A man brings, has an um, epileptic son, and he brings them to the apostles um, to heal, and they're not able to. And then Jesus comes. He was up on Mount Tabor with the transfiguration. He comes down from the mountain, and he heals the boy. And, but he says, the man um, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you can, you know, heal him. And Jesus says, if, if I can? Um, so you can see it wasn't, the man didn't ask well, right? Because he, the very way he asked, if you can do something, Jesus, please do it. There was a doubt in his question. But nevertheless, he came to Jesus and asked. So he was believing, but he was believing imperfectly. And so he makes a beautiful prayer. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So they come from God, and they serve to put us in relationship with him. And so there's three aspects of being in relationship with God. I can't be in relationship with him if I don't trust and believe him. So that's why faith is the foundational virtue. I can't be in relation with anyone if I don't believe anything they say. Right? I can't be in relationship with my wife if I disbelieve everything she tells me. Um, and that's true of our relationship with God. But it's in some way even more important because um, he's the one who knows. And so they, they put us in a relationship and they're the foundation and energizing force of the Christian life, we could say. And so that everyone's Christian life depends on faith, hope, and love. And the more faith, hope, and love grow, the more our Christian life grows. And it's by faith, hope, and love that we'll be judged, ultimately. And so faith is committing ourselves. So what is faith? Um, so faith is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and what he tells us or what he reveals to us. Right? So it's, it's in us. It's that willingness. It's in my... Um, intellect and will. It's going to be in my intellect because I'm believing, I'm saying yes in my mind to what God tells me. But it's from my will because I believe I'll say yes to him because I want to. And the reason why I want to is because I want to be in relationship with him. Right? So it's going to involve both um, my, my mind and my will. And so the, it's the virtue by which we believe um, what God reveals and what gets revealed to us through the church. So the ultimate goal of faith is always God, right? It's not you know, the Pope. But the Pope enters in and the church because how do I know what God has revealed? Right? It's not, I don't simply go into my God corner and, and demand that God reveal everything to me personally. Right? That's not how it works. We saw earlier that God reveals himself through his church. And therefore, part of the structure of faith is that I believe in God um, through what the church gives me um, that God has revealed right, in history, culminating in um, the incarnation in Jesus Christ. Right? So Christ is the center of everything that I believe. He's the one who brought revelation to its perfection. All right? Um, and so it's a way of committing ourselves to God, right? To believe his word. 
And it's, it's not the end. So this is a part of the Reformation was um, Martin Luther saying faith alone. So we don't say faith, we say faith, hope, and love is that by which we're put in right relation. But we agree with all Protestants that faith is the foundation. Right? It's, it's that by which I can enter into relationship. Questions on that? And faith, so it's a gift. Um, but on our part, it's, um, we can, it's something we can desire. And what I want to desire is um, the, I want to um, desire to firmly adhere to God's truth. Right? And not because it seems right. So here's the difficulty. Faith is believing what God says even if it goes contrary to, let's say, the witness of my eyes. Um, so let's take a, the simplest example of that was um, Jesus in Nazareth. Jesus looked just like every other boy in Nazareth, right? And um, Mary and Joseph believed that he wasn't simply another boy in Nazareth. Or when he spoke in the synagogue in Nazareth um, after he was baptized, right, basically saying, I am the Messiah, Right? The people looked at him, didn't see him as looking at any different, and were scandalized and disbelieved and tried to kill him. And so faith would be believing something that I don't see precisely because it's revealed by God. Right? So part of faith is holding something firmly precisely that I don't see. And why would we hold something that I don't see? We do it all the time, right? If I were to ask you, what did you do over Christmas break? And you tell me something, I'm going to believe it, even though I didn't see it. Why? Because I trust you to tell me the truth about what you did Christmas break. Um, and if I do that for someone else, I should do that more for God. All right? So believing in God isn't ever unreasonable. right? It's super reasonable to believe in um, what God who made the world tells, right? So that's, that's the easy part, right? It's reasonable to believe in God. The difficulty is, how do I know what God has revealed? And that's where we need the church. And we talked about this a couple months ago at the very beginning of class. We said there were motives of credibility. In other words, God has put into the Christian faith reasons for believing it. So part of the virtue of faith is believing God, right? Because um, even though I don't see it, but because he's trustworthy and he's made known to me that he speaks through his church. Uh, that's going to be the hard part. Questions on that? I know I, that could be unwrapped for a couple classes. Um, faith, so we can say faith has two parts to it. There's the, um, the personal part, and that is my will wanting to believe in God and my intellect assenting to what God says. And then we could say there's the objective part, and that would be, say, the creed. Right? So um, we often speak about the Catholic faith in an objective sense, what the church believes. So we, can, and we use the same word in two senses. What the church believes, that would be the objective part. And then the virtue of faith, that's what we're speaking about here. That's the virtue of faith is in me and in you. And it's a gift. It's in us from God precisely to say yes to assent 
to what God has revealed, even though we don't see it, and not because it fits my own personal theories of how the world ought to work, but because God revealed it, and he knows what he's talking about. Hope. So um, hope is the theological virtue. Am I, am I going too fast here? Anyone want to ask anything more? We can come back to it next week when we look at the first three commandments. Hope is the virtue by which we, so we hope um, for a difficult good. Right? That's what, so hope is simply also a human passion to um, uh, desire a difficult, arduous good. Of all the goods that are out there, the most difficult and the most important is um, eternal happiness. And so the virtue of hope is the virtue of firmly desiring eternal happiness, not through my power, but through God's power. In other words, desiring happiness in God through God. Right? That's the virtue of hope. And it's opposite is despair. And so um, to despair would be to give up on the very possibility, for me at least, of eternal happiness. And yes, this is real. I was an atheist before becoming Catholic, and atheists live in despair, right? This, if you're an atheist, what do you, death is gonna be the end, and there's no eternal happiness, and there's nothing to put one's hope in. All right, so in real life, in existential reality, hope is gigantic. Hope is what enables us to wake up in the morning and get out of bed and, um, um, and find joy right, in life. Um, hope gives us already here and now a foretaste of what we hope for. Right? That's the way it works even in human things. Um, hoping for something gives one already the, um, a certain um, share in what one hopes for. Um, and so hope in the Christian life is gigantic, and it's something that we always want to grow in, the same as faith and love. And the reason why we don't hope enough is very often we, don't, um, we have too low of an idea of God and of his love and what he wants to give us. And sometimes we have too large an idea of our own weakness, which is substantial, right? But God is infinitely greater than our weakness. Right, so basically, hope has two parts. Putting our trust in getting to God as our eternal happiness, and then through God. Right, so God as the object, and God as our aid. And yes, I'm fallible and weak, and I can mess this up, but he's infinitely stronger than me. Questions on hope? So there's another opposite. So we, we'll talk about this again when we look at the first three commandments. But um, despair is the more obvious contrary of hope. But presumption is another contrary. So presumption would be to think, well, I'm just going to get to heaven no matter what. Even you know, if I hate my neighbor and um, whatever I do, I'm going to get eternal life the same. That's presumption. And it would be forgetting that um, God puts conditions it's a covenant, and he lays down the conditions of the covenant. And if I want eternal life, I have to um, follow the covenant and repent when I haven't. 
Obviously, hope means that God's greater than my weakness, but I still have to repent. Right? So presumption would be taking away the need for repentance. Question on that? Right? And so Jesus, in, when he proclaims the gospel, he starts precisely with repentance. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Right? Repentance is the way that we enter. Yeah. Repentance and belief. Okay, charity. So charity slash love, I'm using them as synonyms. Charity and, so the word charity, it's useful and it um, leads astray at the same time. It's useful because the word love um, can be used in so many different senses. So when we speak about the theological virtue of love or charity, we don't mean the same love that, by which I love ice cream or, or something like that. Um, the word love has all these different meanings and it basically means seeking the good and in personal relations, seeking the good for others as for ourselves. And so um, what we mean by charity here is to love God in that way and our neighbor for God's sake. So that's the theological virtue of charity. Loving God above all things and our neighbor, whoever our neighbor is, because my neighbor is a son or daughter of God. Um, or ordered to that, right? And my neighbor is made in God's image. And so it would be a lie to say I love God and I don't love my neighbor who's made in his image for him. Right? That would be like saying, you know, I love my friend, but I hate my friend's children. Um, sometimes we might say that, but that would not, um, right? That wouldn't be compatible with actually loving someone. Um, charity, um, sometimes, I mean, normally we use the word charity for giving alms. That's not all that we mean here. That's part of it, right? That would be part of loving my neighbor, giving alms, giving to those who are in need, doing the works of mercy. But it's bigger than that, right? It's simply, it's willing the good for every human being because they're made by God and for God. And so love is the whole of the law, right? So Jesus says that, um, the whole of the law. So in the old law of Moses, there were 600 and, I forget, 31, 613? 13. 13 um, commandments. And, um, and so when Jesus was asked about, you know, is there a first? And the answer is the double commandment, right? To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and your neighbor as yourself. And so we call that the double commandment. And that sums up all of our moral life. I know there's, there's nothing in our moral life that isn't included in the double commandment of love. And so sometimes people think, ah, Catholic, you know, moral life, it's all about do's and don'ts and this whole, it's actually, it's that, if, if we make it that way, then we're messing it up. Um, because it's, it's ultimately very simple, right? Summed up in the virtue of charity. So St. Paul calls charity the bond of perfection. Colossians 3. And it's the foundation of every other virtue. So all of the virtues that we talked about before, justice, prudence, and fortitude, and temperance, and all of them need to be in the service of charity. Right? So charity is the queen that ought to be commanding every other virtue in our life and commanding everything that we do. And when we examine our conscience, 
what, we're gonna, what we should examine is, above all, um, precisely charity. Was charity inspiring everything that I did? Um, and St. Paul speaks pretty strongly about this. So even the importance of faith, we said faith was of incredible importance as the foundation of the Christian life. But St. Paul, in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says, if I have all faith, faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have charity or love, he says, I have nothing. So we can see from that that charity is ultimately the queen even above faith and hope. Um, and obviously, they shouldn't ever be um, in competition, right? They work together, but with charity leading. And this also was part of the Reformation debates, whether we're saved. So that was with Martin Luther, the whole thing of salvation by faith alone. And that might sound good if you don't ask, well, what, what's the alone um, excluding? And um, in the Reformation debates, it was the necessity of charity. And so that, that's crazy. That, to think that I could be saved by faith alone without love would be contrary to St. Paul, right? That if I have all faith, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And it makes sense because love is what unites, right? Just as in a marriage. And yes, it's really important in marriage that I believe my wife and that she have trust in me, right? But ultimately, if there's no love, then there's the soul of that marriage is going to be missing, right? And that's how it is with God and our relationship with him and with our neighbor. Questions on that? There's tons more to say, but... Basically, love ought to be commanding, as the queen, every other act and virtue, right? And putting things in order. Um, so sometimes people, um, do I always have to, somebody might ask a question, do I always have to give alms whenever anyone asks me? Um, I always have to be asked, so the answer is I always have to be acting in charity. But no, I don't always have to give whatever somebody asks, because first of all, it might not be good for them or um, or for myself, if it would mean bankrupting me, etc. And so to act in charity means to seek what's truly good for um, oneself, for, for God, for oneself, and for um, um, the person right, who's asking, for society, for the common good. In other words, it, charity looks at the whole picture. And so it can be, it's easy to say, act charitably, but it can be difficult to determine in a given situation what would be the more charitable thing to do. And so that's why charity also needs the aid of prudence. Right? I have to prudently do charity. I have a question about, mm -hmm. about your terminology. What is uh, almsgiving? Or uh, almsgiving? Okay. Alms, normally we think of it in terms of... Um, so there, there are works of mercy. Um, and so there are corporal works of mercy, that one, and, um, and spiritual works. So in the gospel, in Matthew 25, um, Jesus speaks about the last judgment. And the criterion for the last judgment is when you were naked, um, when I was naked, you, right, you gave me clothes. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was... Um, a stranger you took me in when I was in prison you visited me. Those are our alms. So in other words, alms isn't just giving money. Alms is doing alms is basically um, doing all of the corporal works of mercy 
But there's also spiritual alms, and that would be the spiritual works of mercy. And that might be praying for somebody, giving them good counsel, and listening to them when they need to vent. And, you know, um, it can be putting up with people who are irritating. And um, so almsgiving is bigger than just simply giving a material aid to somebody. But that's what we usually think of first. So basically, all the works of mercy are ways of giving alms. And it's part of the, um, um, so in Lent, we speak about three fundamental kind of um, spiritual practices, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Um, but again, they're, all three are bigger than we usually think. All right, does that make, make sense? Yeah, and fasting likewise doesn't just mean not eating, you know, dessert or chocolate, giving up chocolate. Fasting would be giving up legitimate things that enable me to focus more in my life on what's more important. Okay. I'm giving you too many things, but uh, anybody, any other questions on charity before we go on? Yeah, so charity is definitely, with our, regard to our neighbor, the works of mercy. And mercy is simply love directed to those in need. Right? So um, God is mercy because he's love in himself and we are needy. And so to us, he's the God of mercy because he loves. In addition to the seven virtues that we just went through, there are also seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, this is ridiculous to, <laughs> to overload you like this. But um, we'll come back to this when we do confirmation. Um, but um, let me say something about it. Um, virtue, scripture speaks about the virtues, right? So especially faith, hope, and love, we find all through the, the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. But scripture also speaks about seven other gifts um, and it's above all from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And it's um, a prophecy about the Messiah. And it's a prophecy that on the Messiah, um, there rests a spirit of, under, of wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. And so in, in the Catholic tradition, these are called the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you might say, why do we... Do we need more things in addition to the seven virtues that we just went through? Um, this, the seven virtues, especially love, is the most important, right? So love is the, the queen. These seven um, gifts of the Holy Spirit help us because very often um, we don't know. So let me give it, um, go back to wanting to help somebody, right? Suppose I want to, somebody is in need, I want to help them, and I don't know what the right way to help them is. I can um, try and be prudent, but I have to recognize that I don't know what to do. My prudence won't get me very far. This happens all the time in the Christian life. Right? People come to us with a problem, and I don't actually know how to fix it. And if I think that I know, that might be just arrogance. Um, and so what should I do? I should pray that God put in my mouth the right things to say, the right thing to do. And that's a gift. That's one of the gifts. That would be the gift here of counsel. Um, so these seven gifts are recognizing that my intelligence very often falls short in telling me what's the right thing to do. And I need to be aided by a gift of God that comes from above. And that isn't simply me choosing. 
Um, there's a problem, though. How do I know that it's coming from God? And how do I know what God is saying? And that requires discernment, right, as we said before. Um, but that, um, these seven gifts grow in us over time. And what they are is basically a docility. Docility is a fancy word for um, being teachable by God himself. In other words, being able to, so when we pray, so I said before, when we were talking about prudence, if I have an important decision to make, what should I do? I should bring it to prayer. And I should think that God is going to speak to me about it. And so that would be the gifts of the Holy Spirit is to have an understanding, a wisdom, a counsel um, that comes not just from me, but from above. That's going to show me. So Jesus says, when they um, persecute you and they bring you before you know, a tribunal, should you make up a nice fancy speech? What does he say? He says, don't make up a speech because the Holy Spirit will give you the right words to say on that occasion. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit, is to be teachable by God. But I'm not going to be teachable by God if I don't ever speak with him and I don't have a practice of prayer. Right? That would be tempting God to, ask, to expect God to tell me what to do and never speak to him. That, right? That's not going to work. Um, and so the gifts of the Holy Spirit presuppose that I spend time with God and seek to get to know him as in a friendship. Because basically that's how it works in our friendships, especially marriage. Right? So um, in marriage, it, um, spouses know one another by their relationship. Right? So my spouse, if something is wrong with me, she knows it before anybody else. Right? And that's because um, she knows it by way of this intimate friendship. If we have a relationship with God, we'll understand things about God by way of that relationship. That's what these gifts are. So if I'm not in a relationship with him, it's impossible to have these gifts. They're, they come from having a relationship, and the deeper the relationship, the more we'll grow in these seven gifts. Right, so we'll, we'll talk more about them when we do confirmation um, because they're given in confirmation. Um, in other words, they, again, come from above, and they, but they're to grow through the whole of our life. So fear of the Lord, the lowest of these, would be, it doesn't mean to be you know, in terror of God. That's not a good thing. It means to be afraid of offending him. And that's part of love, right? If I'm in a relationship, I want to be um, concerned about offending the one I love. And so, but I don't always know, right, what, uh, we don't know very well what sin is. Fear of the Lord helps us to have a sense of sin from above, out of love. And piety is going to help us to have a sense of um, of what it means to worship him, not simply in a legalistic sense, but from the heart as his son or daughter. And again, it's not something that I can just will myself to do or to have, right? It's a gift. Um, fortitude would be um, knowing when to, um, yeah, when to be courageous for him according to his will and not simply according to my preferences. Um, knowledge would be knowing um, we talked before about self-knowing, self-knowledge. So knowing myself, my own weaknesses, and, um, and that he's, 
counsel is going to be um, having God show us what's the right thing to do in a given circumstance. So even what's my vocation in life? What does God want me to ultimately do? Um, that's, so I teach seminarians, and they all wrestle with this. And it's not something that you can just figure out yourself. It's got to be the, the gift of counsel. Ah, I see, this is what you're calling me to, because this gives a peace. And then um, understanding will be an insight into the faith, again, not simply by study. We have to do study. That's why we do RCA class. But more important is the understanding of God that comes through prayer. That's the gift of understanding. And wisdom is to be able to judge all things um, in the light of Christ and in the light of his cross. Yeah, and there, again, we want to pray for them. St. Paul also speaks of the fruits of the Spirit. Now I really am going overboard. Um, and so but maybe the best to simplify, the fruits of the Spirit are simply the fruits of having virtue. If somebody has virtue, um, these fruits will come out. Charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. All right, I'm going to end on this depressing subject. Um, what is sin? So we've looked at the positive first. But we also have to, I mean, part of the gospel is that there is sin and it's something serious. So what is it? So there's a classical definition of St. Augustine, a word, act, or desire. We could even add in omission. So um, an action, that'd be the most obvious thing, right? Let's say a murder. Um, a word, a lie, let's say, or a calumny. A desire. That would be the ninth and 10th commandments. I desire to commit adultery even if I'm blocked from putting it into practice or something like that. Um, and omission would be I don't do something that I need to do um, against God's law. Right? So that's what a sin is. Any action in the broad sense, act, word, desire, um, or omission um, against God's law. But God's law, somebody might say, well, how do I know God's law? Well, God's law... It's revealed in the gospel, but it's also written on the heart. And that's where conscience comes in. So sin is always going to be going against what my conscience is warning me um, with regard to good or evil. Right? So sin, it's against God's law. It's against natural law written on the heart. And it's against conscience. It's also against charity and right reason. Sin is against um, basically, all of the things that make us who we are, um, rational beings with reason, um, with God's law written on the heart and with a conscience, made to love. And so sin is harmful to all of those things. It's going to be harmful, first and foremost, to our relationship with God. But it's going to be harmful to ourselves, right, because it's going to deform our conscience and bring about a vice in ourselves. It's going to obviously be harmful to our relationships with others, right? Because every sin is against charity, and charity unites, sin divides. And so it wounds, it injures human solidarity, every sin. Sometimes we don't, right? You might think, ah, oh, this was just a sin of desire. I didn't act on it, fortunately. Well, that's better. But it still um, at least injured me in, um, in making um, disordered desires in myself. Right? So Christ 
in his passion, shows us the seriousness of sin. So without, um, well, speaking for myself, as an atheist, um, sure, there's, conscience is active in every atheist, but the atheist doesn't see the full effects of sin. The full effect of sin is revealed by Christ's cross, right? That it crucifies Christ. And so he reveals the seriousness of it, but he also gives us superabundant remedies, baptism, um, confession, and the call to repentance and his grace. So kinds of sin, lots of different kinds of sin, um, as many, yeah, so many different kinds of sin that we, dis we spoke about this when we said that um, acts come um, a particular object makes a particular kind of human act, right? And so um, there are many different kinds of sin that is why we have different commandments, right? To prohibit different kinds of sin. The easiest way maybe to divide sins is sins against God, um, against our neighbor, against ourselves. And that would be the first three commandments, sins against God, um, sins against our neighbor, and then sins of thought being the ninth and tenth commandment. Um, Another way um, is according to the gravity of the sin. And we talked about this before. And this is um, very important in practical life. And that is to distinguish a mortal sin and a venial sin. So a mortal sin is a sin that because it's serious in the object, um, if I do it knowingly and fully willingly, it would break a relationship with God. Right? So that's why we call it mortal. Mortal meaning... Um, putting to death a friendship with God. And so there are three aspects to it. It's got to have grave matter, right? So again, not simply stealing a book, but stealing your credit card, your livelihood, your whatever it may be. Um, in other words, doing something that by its nature seriously affects, um, um, is, is seriously against Charity. I'm, there's no recipe. It's, it's not as if I can um, put into a nice recipe book what's the difference between light matter and grave matter. It's left ultimately to common sense um, by comparison with our human relationships. But um, so grave matter would be obviously taking of a life, but anything that would be seriously harmful to our neighbor, and likewise with regard to God, disbelieving Him. And not hope despairing of him, um, hating him, obviously, but um, and then hating those that he loves, and that's his sons and daughters. And so grave matter blocks that relationship, but I have to know it, that it's grave, and I have to deliberately consent. It can't be something I do when I'm asleep. Right? So those are the three conditions for a grave sin or mortal So grave sin and mortal sin are the same. Right? And yes, they can all be forgiven. There's no sin that cannot be forgiven if we repent of it. But the converse is also true. No sin is forgiven if I don't repent of it. Right? And to repent of it means to be sorry for it and to resolve to break from it. Okay? And if we... Um, are sorry for it and resolved to break from it, motivated by love for God, who's loved us first, 
that already wins forgiveness of that sin. Right? If we're still gonna, if we're already baptized, and we'll still bring it to confession, but we should know that it's forgiven from um, our truly repenting of it out of love. That's often called an act of perfect contrition, to be sorry for sinning um, because um, I've offended God who loves me. Okay, venial sin would be everything that's not mortal, and this is much more common in human life. Right? And so there, it's impossible to avoid all venial sins for us practically in this life, or even in a day. Right? So a, ve a venial sin would be doing something disordered in some way, but without it being grave matter, or without it being fully consented to. So I'm impatient. I said something, a snide remark that was hurtful. Um, I didn't you know, mean to, to destroy a relationship with that person, but um, there, so there are tons of ways in which our actions can lack the right order that they ought to have, and yet they don't break our relationship with God. We should still repent of them and seek God's grace to remove them from our life. All right? And we can bring them, I'll explain this later, to the sacrament of confession. So confession isn't only for mortal sins. Um, hopefully, we, there'll come times when we don't have any mortal sins, and all we have are venial sins, and those are very good to bring to confession. Question on that? All right, and the vices, I think we've already said, are what's contrary to the virtues. Right, and so we often speak of seven capital sins. So um, if um, love is the greatest of the virtues, pride would be the greatest or worst of the vices. So pride, in a sense, pride can have different meanings. But pride we mean here in making myself the center of the universe instead of God. Um, and so pride being the, the most important or the, the worst vice that tends to command other vices. Um, other vices are avarice, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, sloth. Um, sloth there, not meaning simply I don't like to work, but above all, I don't want to take the trouble of cultivating a relationship with God. That's the, the kind of sloth that we're talking about there. A sloth in our relationship with God. And sin tends to, by its very nature, lead me to uh, make it easier to sin again. Right? So sin tends to lead into bondage in that sense. Right? So an ad addiction being a kind of extreme example of what happens with every sin. So it's the same as virtue on the opposite. Right? More virtuous acts lead to greater virtue. More sinful acts lead to greater... Um, uh, disordered inclinations in my own heart. I, yeah. uh, I've got too much planned for today. And we'll be able to do this next time. So maybe I'll leave it here. Question anything that we've done? So basically we've talked about the, our personal life up till now. But the same thing applies in our social life. And that's what I didn't get to here and we'll do next time. Right, so social uh, virtues and vices. All right, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of your grace, of your virtues. Of, we ask for the, an increase of faith, hope, and charity through Christ our Lord. 
name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.